book of Revelation, and we have um, been going through, um, in the last couple months, the things that shall be. We have gone through the, the whole outline, as it were, that, that Jesus has presented, the things that were, the things that are, and we are in the things that shall be. And as we've gone through the things that shall be, we have already gone through the first half of the 70th week of Daniel's vision. And um, last week, we began looking at the second week, the second uh, three and a half years. And in that, we began looking at it by the assault of the dragon. If you were here, you remember that. And in the assault of the dragon, we saw that the dragon's assault, the, the fiery red dragon, that his assault was first heavenly and then earthly. But it was all focused on seeking to destroy, to annul, to attack, to assault the plan of God. And so first, he set himself up to seek to devour the, the man-child, the male-child that was going to be given birth to. And as he set himself up to, to, give, to devour the child, he was, he was thwarted in that attempt. And as he was thwarted in the attempt to devour the child, he turned around in his focus to the, to, the, to the woman that was Israel, to the nation of Israel, to destroy the nation of Israel. But then we were told that the nation of Israel was taken away and placed into the wilderness. And so his attempt to assault her was thwarted. And so then after that was thwarted, he turned his attention to, anybody know? Anybody remember? First it was the male child, then who was it, Christopher? Good job, Christopher, I'm glad you come. I mean, I, you know, these adults I'm not quite sure about sometimes, you know? But that's exactly right, okay? So, and who were her other offsprings, Christopher? Do you remember who they're called? The Christians, the saints. That's exactly right, the saints. Good. And so the saints, so he turns his attention to the saints. And so it comes then to the, to the earthly assault. And we see in that earthly assault that there was a beast that, was, that rose, rises up out of the sea. And that beast had the, the, um, the, the seven heads and the ten horns just like, the, um, just like the fiery red dragon did. And, so, and then after that beast arose, there was a second beast that came upon and does anybody remember how the second beast was described? What did he look like? How was the second beast? What did he look like? Okay, Christopher, help him out. He looked like a lamb. Good, okay. But what did he talk like? Anybody else want to jump in? Go ahead, Grace. He talked like a dragon. Good job. There we go. These kids are good. Okay, out of the mouth of babes. All right, so we have the second beast. It looks like a lamb, but he's talking like the dragon. Okay, and so we talk about how the false... The false apostles, the false ministers, okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And so, the second beast, though, who we see to be the false prophet, okay, later on in the book of Revelation, what was the primary function of the false prophet? What did he do? What did the second beast do? He sought to give what? Attention to the first beast, okay? And bring worship to the first beast. And so, he had people make an image of the first beast. And then he had them take the, the mark of the, the, of the first beast and, and to put it on everybody's uh, right hand or on the forehead. And you weren't able to, to buy or sell if you didn't have the mark. Okay? And so that was that whole assault, the whole thing. And so we talked a lot last week about different things. It was a, a long message. And, and we talked about the mark of the beast and the, the number of the beast. And, and the, in the end... What was the final comment that we, we talked about? <clears throat> about all these people worrying about today about the mark of the beast and what might be the mark of the beast. What was it, Christopher? Well, it's not, it's not right now, so... It doesn't happen until the second half of the... 
and, and the temple already has to be in Jerusalem, right? And we don't see a temple in Jerusalem. So why is everybody worrying about the mark of the beast? It's not now. It's not here. It's not for, for a while. And so I don't know how long, but at least I mean, there's no temple in Jerusalem right now. So I know it's got to be at least three and a half years from now. You know, right? So, I mean, there's got to be a temple. So when we see the temple in Jerusalem, and we see that there's temple worship starting to happen again, maybe we need to start thinking about the book of Revelation, okay, and things that are happening. Now, I'm not saying we don't think, think about it now, but the point is that those events aren't occurring right now. So everybody's worrying about who the, who the beast is, who the Antichrist is. It's not revealed. It's not revealed. Okay? But... We're going to move into now chapter 14, as Steve read earlier, the first five verses. And the first five verses are about who? No. <coughs> Say again? 144,000. 144, Anybody else have any, any opinions? How about the lamb? It's really about the lamb. Now, we're, talk, we're told about the 144,000, and that's who we're really, really going to talk about in, in the message is 144,000. But if you, if you look at chapter 14, verse 1, how does it start? And behold, I saw who? The Lamb. And it just happened to be that the redeemed, the 144,000, were what? They were hanging out with the Lamb. Isn't that nice? I mean, you know, this is, this is how you get to know if you're hanging out with who? Who's the Lamb. And we're going to talk about this. So we're going to talk about the 144,000. And in the, the, the talking about the 144,000, the 144,000 are those who are the redeemed. Okay? Now... I believe in a literal interpretation. And so I believe these are literally 144,000. Not, this is not a spiritual thing. This is not an uh, uh, allegorical thing. This is not a representative of many other people. These are 144,000. Have we talked about 144,000 believers before? Good, that's exactly right. When we talked about the 12,000 from every tribe, okay, earlier... And now, people, now you've got to understand, that in this, because we're really not going to talk about the identity of these people coming back here, but there are a lot of interpretations out there, and there are people, for example, like Jehovah Witnesses, who say that this 144,000 are the redeemed, the only redeemed. Okay, now we're going to talk about that a little bit later when we talk about them being the redeemed, okay? But the fact is, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the only redeemed, okay? But these 144,000, I think, probably are those 144,000 from a few chapters ago, who were 12,000 from every tribe, okay? And remember when we talked back then that they weren't necessarily saved back then, but that God was sealing them so that they would be saved, spared, through all the tribulation that was about ready to come upon the earth, through the, the, the rest of the seal judgments, through the trumpet judgments, do you remember that? So that they would be here during the 70th week of Daniel, so that they would be God's witness. So now here they are, we're seeing them again. Now, what is really exciting to me is that they're what? We know for a fact they're what? Say again? Well, well, we're going to talk about the virgin, but they're believers, man. They're believers. They're with the Lamb. Do you get it? So here they are. God set them aside. God spared them for a particular purpose to be his witnesses, and here they are. Okay? And so these are the guys we're getting ready to talk about. They're here. God had a purpose for them. And God's going to get ready to use them. The first thing we see is their consecration. The word consecration is they're being set apart. And the first thing about being set apart is that we're told that they were in the presence of the Lamb on Mount Zion. Okay? And so the picture there is the picture of the temple. Did anybody note anything special about that, the picture of the temple that's there? This is really cool. Okay, you got to look at it. What, what's special about this picture? Huh? 
No, the temple's not off the site. No. This is great. When, 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 you, when you realize it, you're going to go, Ah! Oh! Say again? The lights are on? That's pretty cool, but no, that's not it. It, it does, it's, with, the, with our lights being off, it's kind of like a uh, Thomas Kincaid thing, isn't it? With the, the kind of lights showing there. And uh, Okay, let me give you a hint. What's missing? The Dome of the Rock's missing. Isn't that cool? Anyways, I don't know how the person did that. But anyways, um, and so that's a great picture. So this is Mount Zion. This is, this is where the, you know, the God has placed his name. Of all the places on the earth, we're told, I mean, I don't have all the verses this year. We have a couple verses we want to talk about. But of all the places, God has declared that this was going to be his place. And so this is the place where the Lamb is going to come, right? And he's going to, he's going to gather with the 144,000 witnesses. So where are, the, where, are they, where are they meeting? Where is, this, where is this meeting at? It's in Jerusalem. It's up on the Temple Mount, okay? And so we read how important the Temple Mount is, Mount Zion is to God. In Psalm 140, or 125, we read a song of the sense, those who trust in Yahweh, those who trust in Yahweh, are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Okay, so all these people who worry about the Muslims and having their stuff on there and stuff like that, and, and we're trying to twist things around and change things and stuff like this. And remember we talked about when we talked about where the temple placement could go, that it could be that the, the, the Dome of the Rock could be in the court of the Gentiles, and that could be the, uh, the abomination of desolation. So that's a possibility, okay, if there's a southern placement for the, the temple. And remember we talked about the, the aqueduct, and we talked about the, the, um, the writings that talk about the placement of the temple proper where it was on the Temple Mount. So it, it could still be there. But the fact is that Mount Zion, God's not going to change his placements because ultimately Mount Zion is God's place. Okay? And it says it's not going to be moved. It abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so Yahweh surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hand to iniquity. Do good, O Yahweh, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, What's exciting about this passage to me, who also is compared to Mount Zion? Those who trust in the Lord. So as God has made a promise to Mount Zion, okay, in a sense, that Mount Zion is his place, is where his name's going to be, and you cannot move it. Who's compared to that? We are. The redeemed. Those who place their trust in Yahweh, those who place their trust in God are going to be like that. You cannot be moved. And so if you're moved, think about it, if you are anxious, if you are struggling, if, you, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're being shaken from your foundation, if you would, then what do you know? You're not trusting in Yahweh. Yeah, isn't this cool stuff? So anyways, and in Psalm 48, verse 1 to 3, we read a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, in the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. So again, nothing's going to happen. Nothing can happen to Mount Zion. It's going to be there. It is God's chosen place. He has set his name on it, and he has chosen to be its refuge. Again, who is symbolically equated with Mount Zion? Believers. Again, if I can't be shaken, right, 
for those who put their trust in it. God is what? God is my refuge in, come on you ones that were in the summer program, God is my what? A very present help in trouble. Yeah, that's right. God is my refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. And so, just in the same way, it's a a neat thing for me then, that the 144,000 would be joining the Lamb at Mount Zion. It's it's very symbolic. It's very very, um, apropos that they would meet together there because it's showing God's refuge, God's protection over those 144,000. Do you understand? I mean, those are the ones that God had chosen to be his witnesses during this troublesome time. And God is basically declaring, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. So secondly, not only were they in the presence of the Lamb of Mount Zion, but they had the name of the Father, the name of his Father, the Lamb's Father, written on their forehead. Now this is exciting. Okay, If you're there and you got the book of Revelation opened up in your chapter 14, go back to chapter 13, what we looked at last week, and let's look at verse 11. It says, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth, and those who dwell in it, to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Okay, right? So we, we've talked about that, and so he's, got, he's causing everybody to worship the first beast. And how does he do it? Drop down to verse 16. In verse 16 we read, And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, in that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, I continue reading purposely there. Why? Were chapter numbers there when John wrote? No, not at all. This is a continual thought process, okay? So we read what we studied last week about what? What was, what did we just read about in chapter 13? Not, not the lamb, but in chapter 13 about the, the beast, okay? And what specifically about what's happening with the beast? He's marking his own. That's exactly right, okay? In order to buy or sell anything, you had to have what on your forehead? The mark, or what is the mark? We're told. The mark is what? The name or the number of the beast. You get it? And so all the unbelievers, all the non-redeemed, are having the name of their father placed on their forehead. You get it? Who gave the beast all of his authority? No, no. Who gave the first beast his authority? Satan, the red dragon. And we're told that the dragon is Satan. He's Lucifer, right? And so he gives all the authority to the, for the first beast. And so if you would then, if you understand then, who is the beast representative, it's not just Antichrist, it's, it's Satan. And it's the ungodly, the unholy trinity, if you would. You have the Antichrist, you have the false prophet, and you have Satan himself. Okay? And so you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? You've got them all there. That's the unholy trinity. And so they have the name of their father written on their forehead. Do you get it? And juxtaposed to that, here we have in chapter 14, which is really exciting, is that God, in the midst of all this, all these people taking the mark of the beast, he gathers together his. His 144,000 who have his name written on 
their forehead. Do you get it? Isn't that exciting? And so, you know, we talked about way back when these guys were sealed. Remember when they were sealed? And they were sealed. They had the sealing of God on their forehead so that they would not be able to be touched by all the, 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 the locusts that were coming out. They wouldn't be able to be touched by these different plagues and everything that were going to go on. And we talked at that time, what about the rest of us who may be there? We won't be there? I think we'll be there. We're a seal too. That's exactly right. Christopher, you're, you're dotted on. You need to come up and preach, buddy. And, and we're sealed too. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that after we believe, after we trust in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we're sealed already. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is no special sealing that you have to have at that time. You already have the, the name of the Father written on your forehead. Wouldn't it be cool if, if there was this special... Um, spiritual um, light, you know, kind of how you do like the black light and things kind of glow and stuff like that. If you had this special light that you could place on somebody's forehead and, and if they were a believer, you know, that some, you know, Yahweh would be written or whatever God's name, you know, how it would be. All of a sudden, whoop, there it is. And you'd know for a fact whether somebody was what? A believer or not. Don't you ever look at some, some people sometimes and you kind of wonder, do they know Christ or not? Are they a believer or aren't they a believer? I don't really know. All you have to do is pull out your special light and go, and, and, if, and if the forehead kind of glowed a little bit, you know, right? Hey, brother, you're my brother. And they say, wait a second, your head's not glowing. Oh, <clears throat> anyways, so. But you know, are they a believer or not a believer? Well, there is a mark. We are sealed. We have the sealing of the, the, of the Father that's upon us. Now, in that concept of the seal, does anybody remember how they would use a seal? Do you remember from Daniel in the lion's den with um, when Darius, you know, listened to the, all the other presidents and, you know, they were saying, you know, we should have it so that nobody prays to anybody else but you, Darius, King Darius, for a, for a whole month. And if they do, that they deserve to die. And so Daniel went back and he did what? And he prayed, right? And so the rest of the presidents came in and said, oh, you know, king live forever, but we saw Daniel, and so Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, and what did they do at the lion's den? They did what? They sealed it with the king's signet, and we're told right there, the purpose of that was what? That only the king could open it. And so the next morning, very early, who went? The king. That's right, King Darius, King Darius went to open up. He was the one who could open up that seal. On that signet was an image, was a mark that represented him. When you are saved, when you give your life to Jesus Christ, in a sense, you have that wax of God poured on you. And his signet ring is just stuck into your forehead. And you've got his mark. Now we're going to talk about the mark, the cock, about the testimony in just a few moments. Because I think that it goes beyond even just this piece of wax and just this thing that maybe we can put a light on. I think that there is more of a mark that's going to be on an individual that's going to be noticed than just maybe this round little punch that may be in their forehead and wish we could understand it. I hope you're tracking with me here in this one. So, the consecration of the redeemed. They're in the presence of the Lamb on Mount Zion. They read the name of the Father on their foreheads. And so because of this, because of this being in his presence and having his name, now we're going to see that, that being saved, the first thing that, 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 that happened,
happens to them is that they have this joy that's in them, being the redeemed. And, you know, the reality is we talk about this many times, but people who are happy tend to hum, whistle, or sing. And, you know, and I ask this a lot of times, whose songs are you singing? You know, we can tell an awful lot about people by what they want to sing, who they're giving praise to, what songs they're singing. Well, the first thing we see is the accompanist. The accompanist. Now, this is exciting to me as we look at this. And we see in verse 2, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and the voice of loud thunders, and I heard the sound of harpists playing the harps. Okay? They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the living creatures. Who sang? Who sang? 144,000? Is that what the context says? The, the heavens sang? I think it's the harpist. And, and, and I don't think it's necessarily singing. I think it's the word phony. I think it's just they were, they were, they were making the noise. Okay? And their, their noise. They were playing this song. Okay? And we're told later that the only ones who could learn the song were who? The 144,000. That's exactly right. The only ones who could learn it were the 144,000. But what's really neat about this is who's playing it? The accompanists. You get it? The harpists are already playing the song. What does it mean to you? That the harpist must what? Know the song. I'm singing up here. I led, I've led four, four songs, right? And I led them a cappella because nobody knew the song to play, right? No, but clearly, Gabrielle was doing what? She was already playing the song. And then I started to what? Sing the words of the song. Now, you say, wait a second, I don't get it. This is exciting to me. See, because again, we, we take things out of context sometimes. We put too much into certain words and we take things out of words. But... In Revelation 5, verse 6 to 12, we already went through this, okay? But we read, it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it were slain. Then we drop down to verse 3. And it says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Who had the harps? The elders. The 24 elders, the 420 elders had the harps. They're playing. Now you never know. See, you may think you don't have a, a musical bone in your body, but when you get to heaven, guess what? If God wants you to play a harp, you're going to play a harp. Isn't it pretty cool to play a harp? I always want to be able to That's a beautiful sound, you know? When I get there, I hope that, you know, he allows me to have that ability. That's a beautiful sound. And they sang. Who sang? Who sang? The 420 elders. They're playing the harps. And it says, they sang a what? A new song. They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders. And the number of them were ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who was to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, 
Do you note any difference between the second song there and the first song? The song of the 420 elders when they're playing their harps and they're singing, and then the song of all the angels and all the heavenly creatures. What's the primary difference between the songs? That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, everybody, when everybody sings, they talk about the, the sovereignty of God and, uh, and of the Lamb, right? And what He's done. But when the 420 elders are singing the new song by themselves, they're praising God because He redeemed them. Out of what? Out of every tribe and every nation and out of every tongue. Okay, not just the, the 12,000 from, from each of the tribes of Israel. Does it make sense? Okay. There's much more beyond the 144,000 who are redeemed. These 144,000 we're talking about right now are the special ones who have a special ministry during that final 70th week of Daniel. Okay. But what's exciting here is the ones who are playing the harps are the believers. The believers, the redeemed, are playing the harps. And the believers are singing the new song. In Revelation 15, we read, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having what? Having hearts. So who are these people? They're the redeemed. They're the believers. They're the ones who refused the mark, who died for the name of Jesus Christ during the, that 70th week, right? And it says, And they sing the song of Moses, a servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have, mis have been made manifest. Okay. Those are the only places where there are hearts in the book of Revelation. So, we go back to Revelation 14. And we have these harpists playing their hearts. And the harpists seem to be what? Singing the song. And the only one in the midst of all this, okay, we're going to talk about the audience in just a moment, in the midst of all the rest of the audience, the only ones who are able now to learn the song are the 144,000. Get it? Why? Because it's a song of the redeemed. It's a song of redemption. That's exactly right. And who can't learn the song? The angels. The angels. The angels have never been redeemed. Remember we're told by Peter in his epistle and everything that angels long to understand. Angels have never been redeemed. They had one chance to choose to serve God or Lucifer. Lucifer fell. He said in his heart, I will be like the Most High God. And at that time, a third of the angels fell with him. We just saw that in Revelation chapter 12 as well. Okay? And a third of the angels fell with him. They had one chance. To make one decision. Serve God or serve Lucifer. At that moment, they were sealed, if you would, in their decision. They don't understand the concept of redemption. You and I have rejected God more than once. But because of the blood of the Lamb, you've been paid. Your, your sins have been paid for. You've been purchased. We're going to talk about that in a moment. It's exciting stuff. But the angels, they can't sing the song. They can't even learn the song. They have no concept of what it means to be redeemed. They've never been in sin. They weren't lost. They weren't found. They weren't saved. They weren't delivered. 
but the only ones who were able to learn that psalm are the 144,000. So we have the audience. Who's the audience? Now, again, picture this. Know where we're at. Okay, Where is the lamb? In verse 1, where is the lamb? Mount Zion. Where's Mount Zion? It's Jerusalem. It's earthly. Who's with him? 144,000. Where are they? They're on the earth. It's earthly. But who's the audience? Heaven. It's a heavenly audience. Look at this. They're, we're told they're before the throne. They're singing before the... Whose throne? God's throne. So as they sing and as they, they, as they give glory, they're giving glory before the throne, before the four living creatures, and before the elders. Right now, do you realize that there is a heavenly audience that you are performing for? Now hopefully it's not just a performance, if you understand what I'm saying. I hope it's real. But who you are every day, sorry baby, who you are every day is being displayed before a great cloud of witnesses. I remember years ago, there's a couple of you that may remember this name, a guy named Sam Mason died. Remember Brother Sam? It was the first funeral I ever did. And uh, Sam was such a, a neat guy. And I met with him every week as he was going through cancer. And he had gone through cancer for years. I mean, he had blue dots all over his face and, and from, from previous um, radiation treatments that he received. You know, years ago, they, they put the blue dots on him to, to mark where they were going to get it. And so he, the rest of his life, he had these blue dots all over his face. And uh, it was amazing. But, um, and he, he, he wound up succumbing to cancer. And... And I remember the funeral. I mean, you know, preaching on, he'd finished the course. He'd run the race, you know. Henceforth, there was a, light, a crown of righteousness for him. Because he had. He had finished the course. And, um, and I remember, though, the impact that after he passed away, realizing that now Brother Sam was a part of that great cloud of witnesses that was watching me. Did you ever think about the fact that even when nobody's around and you can do whatever you want to do because nobody knows that there's thousands upon thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands who are watching you. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I mean, if God, if God watching you is not b bad enough, think about ten thousands of witnesses checking you out. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells women that they should have long hair or a covering for a particular purpose. Does anybody remember that purpose in 1 Corinthians 11, why a woman should have long hair? Or, or because of the angels. It's not because of men. It's not because of their husband. It's not because of the church. But we're told specifically in 1 Corinthians 11 that they should wear it because of the angels. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know that you are going to judge angels? We have a heavenly audience all the time. We don't think about it. But here in Revelation 14, we're, we're given a glimpse of what it looks like. 
the Lamb comes down and he meets with 144,000. And as they begin to sing this song of the redeemed, it's a song not for men. It's a song for heaven. So this morning, as we were singing, Worthy is the Lamb and Behold the Lamb, in, in the, the testimonies of redemption, when you were singing, were you singing for the people around you, or not singing because of the people around you, or were you singing for God? When we gather together, it's not to sing for one another. Sometimes we do this as specials and as a blessing. But ultimately, the songs that we sing ought to be an offering to, to God. And that's exactly what this is. That as these 144,000, as these redeemed were singing, they weren't singing for men, to please men and tickle ears, but rather they were singing to please God and give glory to God. But thirdly, I want to look at their testimony. See, because as they were in the presence of the Lamb, and they were sealed, if you would, they had the name of the Father written on them, and, and in that presence of the Lamb, being in fellowship with the Lamb and with the Father, that caused them to, to, to spring up with, with praise and, and, and song for the Lord, it was also something that was consistent with the rest of their life. And so in it, we see... First of all, they are described as ones who have not been defiled with women. Now, I told Marcia that my first point was that, very clearly from the Word of God, that women are a source of defilement. Anyways, um, but anyways, women would say from Genesis chapter 1 through 3 that men are just what? Dirt. Anyways, so, it's amazing what we can do with the Word of God when we want to. But, this is important to consider, okay, and, and not just to make a joke of these were ones who were called virgins. They were not defiled with women. Now, there's, there's, there's a lot more in here than, again, than what first meets the eye, if you think about this, okay? Because of context. We've got to hold us all in context. Now, the first part is the physical side, and that is, they are, they're virgins, okay? They, they haven't had a relationship with women. Now, this is important, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're told that if you're married, you ought to seek to stay married. But if you're not married, you ought to seek to stay not married. What's, what's more the blessing of being single than being married? Does anybody remember? That's exactly right. Because you can focus on the things of God, how to please the Lord, and not necessarily the things of the world and how to please your wife. Or as a woman, the things of the world and how to please your husband. The minute you get married, you are Divided. And as you have children, you are what? Divided again, and divided again, and divided again. That's exactly right. But if you are not married, and you don't have kids, you are, can be what? Singly focused on the Lord. And the things of the Lord, you're not having to be distracted by the things of the world, and how to please somebody else, but rather you can focus on the things of God, and the things of heaven, and focus on, on the Lord himself. And so these individuals, they're virgins. They haven't been, whether it's a woman or whether it's a, these were women, they were with a guy, we know that they're men, and so they haven't been with women. But the point is, that they're able to be what? Fully focused on the Lord. Okay? Now, the other side of it is, we're told though, that as virgins, and that they haven't been with women, they're not what? Defiled. Now, this sounds really kind of odd, um, when you first think about it, defiled, because the word here really means what? Defiled. 
Okay? It really it means to be contaminated by. Okay? They're not defiled by a woman. You think, that doesn't make sense. Because Jesus said in Matthew 19 that from the beginning what? It was God's plan, wasn't it? I mean, didn't God make a, a woman for the man? And if, if woman was a source of defilement, clearly then in Genesis chapter 2, God wouldn't have done what? Made a woman. So clearly it's God's purpose for there to be one man and one woman, and that a woman necessarily in and of herself is not a source of defilement. Okay? Now, there's two sides in this. Now, in the law, in the law, if you as a man had a relationship with a woman, okay, during that time until evening you were considered to be unclean or defiled. Okay? There is that, that part in that. Okay? Because you're not set fully apart unto the Lord. But there is a second side of all this that's in there. And it's the spiritual side of it. Okay? When we talk about physical adultery, okay, and that is having a woman other than my, my wife, okay, there is also, beyond physical adultery, there is spiritual adultery. And the, the picture of physical adultery is actually a picture of spiritual adultery. What's spiritual adultery? Worshipping other gods. That's exactly right. Okay? And we are told, look at Revelation 14. Drop down to verse, um, the verse 6. We'll keep it in context. And it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, why? Why is she fallen? Because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her what? Fornication, adulteries. That's exactly right. Her, her sexual immoralities, if you would, okay? But clearly, it's not talking about physical sexual immorality. It's talking about the spiritual. Right now, in the United States, we are undergoing a massive change in our ideologies. Hundreds of years ago, we would said that we were a what kind of nation? Or Judeo-Christian, anyway. Okay? That in, in fact, the concept of Judeo-Christian means that Christianity is based upon the roots of Judaism and that we have the same God as the Jews. Does that make sense? That it's the creator God. And so that was the understanding. And so that even when our, our fathers wrote, the, um, and I talk about not our fathers spiritually, but our fathers uh, patriotically, they wrote and they, they gave credence to the creator God. Okay? They gave credence to the, the one who oversaw all things. Today, we no longer serve that God as a nation. Rather, we have come to the point where we are antagonistic to that God. Um, in a case that um, we just saw come through the email from New Hampshire, where there was a homeschool mom who is now ordered by the courts that she can no longer homeschool. She has to put her child in public school. Okay? Because the husband, it was a divorce situation, and the husband put in a court case, in a suit, because his case was he's not a believer. She is. And so she is teaching the child 
Christian, Christianity, okay, Christian doctrine, is part of the homeschool. Now, the child is already tested, and this is part of the court, this is all the quotes there, okay, so this is court document stuff, that the child has been tested and, and has been proven to be um, academically superior. She is not struggling sociologically. She has many friends, and she is out there and all these things. So, so all these things are positive. There's no negative. But the husband's contention, or the father's contention, is that you know, he, she's not being exposed to other religious um, teachings out there, and needs, you know, so she's believing this Christianity stuff because that's all she's getting, and so she needs to be in public school so she can, she can be, uh, uh, yeah, taught other than Christianity. She can be something other than Christian. And you know what the court decided? That even though. There is, no, there is no negatives going on coming from the homeschool. But the, since the judge was of that same mindset, the judge said, yes, the child's got to be stopping homeschool, but got to be put in a public school so that the child can be exposed to something other than Christianity. Now, we shake our heads. Remember, we talked last week about the case in Ohio and stuff like that. Listen, things are changing so rapidly in our land that we don't have a clue. Now, I'm not saying at this moment that the United States is Babylon the Great, Okay. I don't know necessarily. There are different views of who Babylon is, and when we get to that chapter, we'll talk about it, about who Babylon is. But the fact is that that fornication is, and that adultery is, spiritual adultery. It's against God. It's having other partners. And these ones who are not defiled, they're virgins. They have been fully focused on the Lord. They're wholly devoted to him. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. You're either going to love the one and despise the other, or you're serve the one and, and, and hate the other. You've got to choose who you're going to serve. Which side of the fence are you on? You can't be on both sides of the fence. Because if you're on both sides of the fence, you're on the wrong side of the fence. Do you get it? Now I'm not saying it. God says it. These are ones who are virgins. They've not been defiled. I think these women isn't just physical. I think it's spiritual. That they haven't been defiled by the other gods, by the world, by the things that the world wants to offer. I often say the two hardest things in our culture to be is either a woman who desires to be godly in her submission to headship in in a culture that says burn your bra, and being your, being, your, being your own woman. The feminist movement. Or a man who desires to be pure before God. And to be holy before God. In a culture that takes off all the clothes. And flaunts the flesh. And, 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 and says to the man. Enjoy. These are ones who understood. What their calling was. And that was. To be fully focused upon the Lord. Now we're told. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 to 7, it says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it, as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is what? 
defile. In the same context, as we go to 1 Corinthians 10, which we're not going to go to right now, but Paul then goes on and he continues talking about this, and he says in chapter 10, he says, you can't eat from the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Do we seek to make God jealous? Now we're getting ready, in a little bit, to participate in the table of the Lord. The cup of the Lord. And what God says is you can't participate in the cup of the Lord if you're participating in the cup of demons. That's adultery. And adulterers have no place. Revelation 3, 1-4, he says to the to the believers of the church of Sardis, he says, To the angel of the church of Sardis, write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, though, even in Sardis, who have not what? Defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white. Why? They're worthy. These 144,000, they're in the presence of the Lamb on Mount Zion. In the midst, in the midst of probably the worst government system that's ever been on the face of the earth. The most anti-God system that's going to be there. And these 144,000 initially are described as those who have not defiled themselves. <laughs> Secondly, we're told that they're the ones who have followed the Lamb. And they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever He goes. That's why they're not defiled. That's why they're fully focused. Because their focus is on who? The Lamb. The lamb. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 9, he says, and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Remember the word concept of suffering. Suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Okay, so this is the context. I put all this for a reason. You're going to know the verse in a second, but this is the context of the verse. Then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What's the context? Of following Jesus. Jesus said. The son of man is getting ready to be what? Not just crucified. He's going to be killed. He's going to be raised the third day. But he's going to be rejected by the elders. He's going to suffer many things. Okay. And then he says. So. If you want to be my disciple. Right. If any man wants to follow me. What? Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. And then he goes on and says. For whoever desires to save his life. Will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of his holy angels. These 144,000 are willing to follow walk in the steps of Jesus wherever he goes. Where did the steps of Jesus go? through persecution. And these 144,000 living in the midst of this last week, in the midst of this persecution, 
we're told in context that the beast was going to be given the right to do what? Anybody remember in Revelation 13? What, was he, what were we told that the beast was going to be given the right to do? Say again. Exercise this authority where? Okay. Make war verse 17 of 12. Make war against saints in verse 8 of 13 says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life and the Lamb of the same. If anyone isn't here, and he's captivity here's the patience. Um, verse 10, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He kills with the sword, must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the, the saints. He's going to be given the, the right to, be, to begin to have war against the saints. Who were the primary saints that he's going to go after? The 144,000 who are going to be the witnesses. And so as this period begins, this last three and a half years, and as the marks are starting to be sealed, right? God takes these 144,000, these, these special chosen and he says, it's that time. And these 144,000, these redeemed, are willing to do what? To follow him into persecution. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21-24, says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps. What steps? Persecution. Do you read that? Because Christ also suffered for us who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Paul says, he says, listen, that I, I count all these things that I used to be, but I'm not anymore. They're lost, and I count them but dung, I count them but rubbish, I count them but a trash heap, that I may what? Know him, that I may know Christ, in the power of his resurrection, and in the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but this one thing I do, Seeking to apprehend that which also I am apprehended of in Christ Jesus. I press toward the mark. I'm forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize. Paul says, listen, it's not just wanting to know the power of the resurrection, but it's also wanting to know the fellowship of the, the sufferings. If you are living boldly for Jesus Christ, especially in the culture that we're becoming right now, there will be times of suffering times of loss, and times of persecution because of the name of Jesus. There are ones who have weren't defiled a woman. They followed the Lamb, and we're told that they're the ones who have been redeemed. You know what's exciting about this word redeemed? Does anybody know what it means? To purchase. To purchase. It's those who have been purchased. It's, it's going to the market and buying something. And so in Matthew 13, in the parables of the kingdom, we read about the, the, the treasure in the field and then the, uh, 
the, the pearl, great price, it says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys. That's our word. Buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay? We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall be one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. That's on us. Flee it. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? Why? For you were bought, that's our word, bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The only time, at least in the New King James, okay, and I think King James as well, is that this word is, is translated redeemed, is right here in the book of Revelation. Agarazzo, I think is what it is. And so, uh, and the idea is, and so, we, like if you have agoraphobia, does anybody know what agoraphobia is? Agoraphobia? This is the fear of, fear of shopping malls. Shopping malls. Well, it's fear of wide places, big places. That's exactly right. Okay? And so that's where it comes from, because it's, it's the shopping area. And so people were, had that were afraid of going out into public, okay, is the idea. And so they had the market. And so this was buying in the market is, is really the, the idea of it, okay? And so we're told that we are bought at a price from the midst of the world, from the, the marketplace of the world, that Jesus Christ came in and said, what? I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Now, at that time, and even in our culture, do you know where slaves were sold? In the marketplace. Isn't that pretty cool? It's like you and I were being stuck upon that that platform, a slave to sin. And you hear, yeah, does anybody want to buy this one? <laughs> Who wants to buy this one? <laughs> and Jesus says what? I'll take them all. Do you know what the price is? You have to die! I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to pay the price. Could you imagine? I mean, it's easy for us to, 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 to do the, the games. That's okay, Grace. It's awesome. It's, it's easy for us to joke about, you know, and, and make the voices and stuff like that. But it's hard for us to get the comprehension of what that really means. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Just a guy who lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross. Shed his blood. Big deal. He's not. Who is he? the Lord and Savior, beyond that, when you say Lord, He's God. He's God in the flesh. The God who created the heavens and the earth. Before Him, there were no other gods, neither shall there ever be after Him. God. The one who breathed into me the breath of life. God. The one who, who spoke the worlds into existence. God, who said, let there be light, and there was. God, who said, who said, let the waters bring forth the, the fish and, and the air have the birds. God who, who, who brought forth the, the, the vegetation on the dry land. 
God, who is so far beyond whatever I can imagine or think, who humbled himself and came to this earth to die for me, to buy me. Do you know why he had to buy me? Because he sold me off. Is that true? No. No, he didn't. Well, how did I become that slave on the stock block that he had to buy back? Because I sold myself. That's exa- I chose to be there. I gave myself to be a slave of sin. And I couldn't pay the price to become unenslaved. So he did it for me. It's an awesome thing. Finally, they're the ones in whom there was no deceit found in their mouth. No guile. No guile. No deceit. No deceptiveness. No falseness was found in their mouth. And remember when we talk about truth and lies? How much, how much untruth does it take to make a statement not true? Just a wee little bit. Just a wee little bit. We don't live like that, though, do we? We, we come, I mean, come on, even moms and dads, you have to have, put your fingers in a kid's ear so they don't hear that you, you, you admit this, okay? But even as adults, we struggle with telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We tend to want to shade things for our own betterment. We talked about this with the victors a few weeks ago when talking about using our, our communication to glorify God and our, our conversations and stuff like that. And one of the things we're told is to, to, to lie not, to, to don't lie. And what are the reasons why people lie? Is to cover themselves, protect themselves. How many people have you ever heard lie to get in trouble? I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. I mean, you wouldn't only think about it, huh? They, they lie to get in trouble. I mean, it's a very rare thing that you ever have that happen. But we lie to try to get not in trouble and all we do is get ourselves in more trouble. That's exactly right. And so, kiddos, lying lips are what? An abomination to who? To God, to the Lord. That's exactly right. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. In these individuals, this is their testimony. They're fully focused on the Lord. They're following the Lamb. They're redeemed by the Lamb. And there's no deceit in their mouth. In 1 Peter 2, we read this earlier, but then you know... One of the things that said about Jesus, when it talked about his sufferings, it said, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. This is almost the exact phraseology that is used of these 144,000 in Revelation 14. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, did not threaten, but committed himself to him. You know, one of the greatest places I think that we, we wind up using this deceptiveness is not just in covering ourselves, protecting ourselves, but on the good side, about trying to get people to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel, the good news of God, in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in guile or deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, tickling their ears, 
but God who tests our heart. How many times we hear about easy believism today? The grace of God. You know, the love of God. But we never want to talk about sin and the consequences of sin. We don't want to talk about the judgment of God because that's not nice. But you know, the gospel, the good news, is what? That you have to turn, and he already talked to the Thessalonians about their testimony, that they turn from following what? And serving idols to serve the living and true God. Listen, that's all part of the gospel. In order for somebody to be found, they've got to know that they're what? Lost. In order for them to be saved, they've got to know that they've got to be saved from something. But we don't want them to do that. We want them to add Jesus to the pantheon of gods that they already serve. But Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve me and other gods. It's got to be one or the other. And so we can't have any guile. There's no deceit. When you speak the truth, speak it in love. But speak the truth. If somebody asks you what you think about something, do what? Speak the truth. 1 Peter 1, 24. Again, go across the, the chapter break into chapter 2, verse 3. It says, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of Yahweh endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now, the reason I went across the chapter break is about the, the word which was preached to you, by which you were saved, and because this is the word that was preached to you and you were saved, get rid of what? Get rid of deceit. Get rid of the deceit. Quit trying to please men. Don't, I mean, you've got to focus on who you're serving. And who are you serving? The lamb. The 144,000 knew it. Or going to know it. Since they, anyways, again, it's one of those already completed future things, right? And so the 144,000 in the midst of persecution, facing death for naming the name of Jesus, are going to be willing to do what? Suffer as Christ suffered in order to name the name of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love his life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, guile, lies. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of Yahweh are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of Yahweh is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but rather sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Big passage. What does it say? It says, speak the truth. Don't lie. And if you tell the truth, then you're not going to get hurt for it. But if you're living in a day when they say what is evil is good and what is good is evil, and they, because you spoke the truth, 
they're going to they're going to persecute you for it then rejoice don't consider that a bad thing at all but rather it's good if you're if you're suffering for for serving the Lord, for righteousness' sake. So in the midst of all that, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, what should you be ready to do? Sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your heart, be fully focused upon Him, so that you can be ready to do what? Give a defense. Give an answer. For the reason of the hope that's within you. So when someone says to you, even in that day of persecution, Why are you following the Lamb? Why won't you take... Now, I understand we're not living in that day, okay? But apply it to today. Why aren't you taking the mark of the beast? Because I'm a follower of the Lamb. Why would you do that when you know that you're going to die for just saying his name? Because he's already died for me. Because he suffered for me and left me an example. And I know that he is true. And I know that when I die, I will be with him in paradise. What about your God? What has he promised you? Food for today? Big deal. Be ready to give an answer. And so the day is going to come when they're going to speak against you. But in the final day, the day of judgment, who's going to have the final judgment? God. And us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we will judge the world. We will be sitting as the jury, the witnesses as well. So, in the end, we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God desires all men to be saved. It is God's desire for all men to be redeemed, to be bought. It's not just a select few. It's not just 144,000 Jews in the end day. But as we're told that there were thousands upon thousands and ten thousands of ten thousands, and there were a, a multitude that could be numbered from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, to give the glory and praise to God. So God desires all men to be saved. And not only does He desire all men to be saved, but He has made, already paid the price for it. We're told that in 1 John chapter 2, that He Himself is a propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's provided the purchase price for you. Now this is a message to glorify God, but if you happen to be here today and you're not one of the redeemed, you haven't received this purchase price. Today is the day of your salvation. Now if you're sitting here today and you say, yeah, that's me. I've accepted that purchase price. I am part of the redeemed. And the question is, are you living like it? How would I know? See, these 144,000, they were in the presence of the Lamb. And they had the name of the Father on their forehead. And because of that, they sang with the song of the redeemed. And they lived the life of the redeemed. Those who are walking about you today, how would they know that you're part of the redeemed? What songs do you sing? The song of the world? What life do you live? The life of the world. Revelation chapter, Revelation, Romans chapter 12 says that we're supposed to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and not be conformed, changed in our outward appearance to look like the world, but rather to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. It's God's desire for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. 
And so if my songs are the songs of the world, and if my life is the life of the world, then who am I following? Who is my God? How do I know that you're really walking in the presence of the Lamb? When you're going elsewhere. We can claim all we want to claim. And we can proclaim whatever we want to proclaim. But in the end, it's going to be God who's the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It's going to be God, the Lamb, who's going to be the judge that's upon that throne. And so I challenge you, as I challenge myself as I go through this. I can't change my life so that it'll look like that, so that I can prove that I'm saved. Because then it's just what? Works. But if I am in the presence of the Lamb, and I do have His name on my forehead, then it will follow that my songs will change. It will follow that my life will change. I will desire to walk in the steps of my Savior. I will desire to please Him and not man. I will be willing to walk through persecution and suffering for His namesake. I won't be ashamed. And if I'm not ashamed of him here, he will not be ashamed of me there. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you that before the foundations of the world were laid, that you sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus, I'm grateful to you for willingly coming to the earth and going to the cross. And that while I was yet a sinner, you paid the penalty of my sin. While I was your enemy, you loved me. Lord, I pray that if there are any today that are here that are unbelievers, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. But Lord, I pray for the redeemed. Lord, help us to walk in your presence. Help us to walk as those who have been in your presence. Lord, help us to be committed to your name. Help us to be strengthened and encouraged to stand in the evil day. Help us not to desire to be conformed to the world, but rather to be transformed in the renewing of our mind. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in each of our lives individually, in our homes, and in this little body. But Lord, I pray that beyond us, even this little body, in, in your body throughout Augusta, the church, it's here, Lord, that the believers, the redeemed, Lord, that you will strengthen them and encourage them. Lord, I pray that as our days grow more evil, Lord, that we would shine brighter, not for our glory, but for yours that you would receive the glory and the praise that you rightly deserve. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.